Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and welcome to Obscene Podcast. I'm your host, Maya Contreras. It's been a while since I've spoken with you all. In fact, it was before the election of 2020, and none of us knew at that point what the outcome would be. While the Democrats maintained a majority in the House, it would take the diligent work of voting rights advocates and organizers in Georgia for us to win a slim majority in the Senate. We weren't even given a day to celebrate that victory because of the violent and deadly insurrection led by white nationalists that would take place at the Capitol the day after Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff were declared the winners in Georgia. Since the inauguration of the Biden-Harris administration, more than 38% of all U.S. adults are now vaccinated. Over 916,000 jobs were added to the jobs market in March, and a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, better known as the American Rescue Act, was passed into law. While much of the latter is good news, we still have coronavirus cases surging due to multiple strands of COVID. The jobs market is a long way from recovering. We still haven't recouped the jobs lost during the Great Recession. And while families and children might have gotten a bit of a bailout from the stimulus package, I have to wonder what a true recovery would look like for families and children. When I say recovery, I don't mean going back to the way things were, but truly recovering from poverty, harm, the housing crisis, and food insecurity. So I spoke with Julia Davis, Director of Youth Justice and Child Welfare for Children's Defense Fund in New York. She helped me break down what's in the American Rescue Act, whom it helps, and who it leaves out. We also examined what policies could truly protect and aid children and their families, not just to recover, but to flourish. Julia Davis joined New York's Children's Defense Fund in 2018 as the Director of Youth Justice and Child Welfare. In her role, she works in partnership with young people, defenders, service providers, and other advocates to advance policies that support children and youth who may have come in contact with the child welfare or criminal legal system. She has spent two decades working on behalf of young people through civil rights litigation, public policy, research, and public engagement campaigns. Prior to coming to Children's Defense Fund, she was a senior attorney at Children's Rights, leading reform litigation for system-involved youth across the country. Here is our interview. 
I'm Julia Davis, and I'm the Director of Youth Justice and Child Welfare at the Children's Defense Fund in New York. And my occupation is to really work with young people and on behalf of young people to help them live in communities where they can grow and thrive. And what drew you to your occupation? I love young people. Um, I think children and adolescents and emerging adults have so much to contribute to our communities and they have so much to teach us, so much wisdom to share, so many solutions to offer. And so I feel very privileged to have spent the last two decades doing this work in a number of different arenas because of that deep love. What were some early obstacles you faced with your career? So I've been very fortunate. I mean, frankly, as a white woman operating in this space of social justice, in the space of advocacy, I have faced very few obstacles to doing the type of work that I felt like was meaningful and powerful. I think that one of the lessons I learned early on was that you need to look for mentors, plural. You need to find lots of people in your life, people who are ahead of you, people who are your peers, and and as you progress, even younger people or people who are more junior to you to teach you lessons um, and to learn from. And that, you know, we are often taught to sort of look for one shining example to help you navigate your career or walk a path in this work. And I think um, one of the great gifts of the work that I've been able to do is to collect the experience and wisdom and guidance from a number of different people in a number of different settings. And I think that's a such an important um, piece of understanding for people to connect with at every stage of their career development. And what's the number one misunderstanding people have about your job Lots of people think that the Children's Defense Fund um, is an organization that, you know, represents kids in court. Um, And that often happens, uh, especially when we're working in spaces related to child welfare and youth justice. And so one of the things I'm always so pleased to talk about is that my work at the Children's Defense Fund really is grounded and rooted in a civil rights history of movement building, of advocacy that happens from the ground up, and advocacy that is really centered in policy as it operates at every level in communities, from individual institutions to states and to, at the federal level. And so something that, that people find surprising is that you know our work is really on behalf of big groups of children and families rather than representing individuals. And that makes sense because the name itself does sound like you do go in and, and defend children. So just, just in a different way. Um, so the Children's Defense Fund is a national organization, but I would like to know what the focus is of the New York's Children's Defense Fund. For example, the New York Freedom School Program. So Children's Defense Fund is one big family. And while we have offices in uh, Washington, D.C. and New York and a lot of other places, we really operate as one place. And that's important because we have a lot of work to do. Freedom schools, for example, which do operate in New York State, also operate across the country. 
And it is a model of uh, literacy programming for children, typically in the summertime when kids are out of school. And it is very rooted in this history of civil rights and movement building. And it is a, a literacy program and pedagogy, meaning like a teaching framework, which is about liberation. It is about, in particular, Black liberation in America and about connecting children with powerful books in community and also with opportunities for advocacy in their own lives and in community. So I am very proud of the fact that we operate freedom schools in churches, in community-based organizations in New York, but we also operate them in two juvenile detention centers here in New York City. So young people, wherever they are in their life, whether it's behind the walls or at home in community, can connect with this very powerful curriculum that is an opportunity um, to touch on things that are connected to themselves and their history, and also to give them an opportunity to look forward um, and think about the types of contributions they can make to change. That sounds wonderfully empowering, and I love the framework um, of that program. Um, one of the things that um, was very disturbing to a lot of us during this year, I can't believe it was just this year, but there was a nine-year-old um, girl who was pepper sprayed and handcuffed in Rochester, New York. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, Children's Defense Fund's uh, Raise the Age program and what laws do you see need to change at the federal and state level to prevent and protect children from being viewed or treated as criminals? That case um, was so disturbing. It made national news. Um, I think for many people that don't work in the spaces that we do, it was frightening and uh, surprising that children could be treated in this way, especially a child in crisis. Mm. Um, and I think before we talk a little bit about the specific reforms that are necessary, it's important to put some context around this, which mm. is um, that the criminalization of children, and by this I mean children under the age of 18, is a legacy that we live with across the country and in New York. Um, and it is very much a racialized experience. Black children in particular um, have been demonstrated to be seen by police and law enforcement as older, as more threatening, um, and predictably more likely to be exposed to the types of things that happened in Rochester, uh, arrest, handcuffing, and pepper spraying. And this is related to a bigger context of the over-surveillance and policing of Black and Latinx communities in New York and elsewhere. And this child, her experience, which was uh, you know, documented with these videos, was, um, I think, just a small picture of a bigger issue about the way that we treat children in our culture today. You know, I think that case, when we talk about the policy solutions and responses to this, there really are, are sort of two lanes. One is the mental health response to a mm -hmm. child or an adult in crisis. Um, right now, we are advocating in Albany for legislation that would require every community to develop a non-police response to mental health crisis for children and for adults. And that's very necessary because you can see what unfolded here 
could have been mitigated and could have come to a very different result if it had not been police responding, but people who understood child development, who understood children in crisis, and who knew techniques to de-escalate and um, to serve that child, connect that child with services immediately, rather than being placed in a, in a police car and taken mm-hmm. away. The trauma of that experience and the fact that so many children come into contact with the police and the juvenile justice system with a history of trauma, with a history mm-hmm. and experience of mental illness, um, tells us so much about why our current system fails and produces these types of really horrific events. So, you know, uh, the proposals now around really decentering police from the mental health response to children and families in crisis is critical. And then when we take uh, the raise the age lane, there we're talking about building on reforms that have been successful in New York. So the Children's Defense Fund and many other, literally thousands of organizations, young people, impacted families, defenders, service providers, worked for years to get a law passed in 2017 that ended the automatic prosecution of 16 and Mm 17-year-olds as adults in New York. And that's been a huge success. We've seen reductions in the number of children under 18 who've been arrested, Mm -hmm. who are detained, who are subsequently adjudicated and uh, incarcerated. And so we have seen a huge shrinking of this system. But the very youngest were left out of that reform. And so children as young as seven in New York can be arrested, Mm. put in handcuffs, and prosecuted in the family court as juvenile delinquents. And so, you know, the second piece of this solution is really about raising the age for juvenile delinquency to 12, something that the American Academy of Pediatrics endorses, and something that's happening in a national movement across the country, has been successful in Massachusetts and California already. And the purpose there is diverting children away from the criminal legal system because of all of the trauma that you can see on the face of that child in Rochester. And because the evidence shows us that when a child comes in contact with the juvenile justice system, they then become twice as likely to end up in the adult system. Mm -hmm. So we need a diversion system, a system that says, you know, we don't arrest children under 12. Instead, we have a way to connect them and their families with services in their community that would meet their needs. That's essential for children's growth and development, and it's essential for community safety as well. That's how we get it done. We don't get it done by arresting, handcuffing, booking, prosecuting children in a court system that frankly, many experts have shown children this young don't even understand. Can you imagine a seven-year-old sitting in a courtroom um, and being prosecuted for an offense? There are just, there's very little evidence to show that that helps us in any way in terms of community safety or sort of children's rehabilitative and supportive um, growth and development. So that bill is something we are also pushing this year in New York. We're excited about it. We feel like um, there are a lot of members that have had their eyes opened by what happened in Rochester mm-hmm. and have a better sense of the consequences of continuing to use a police apparatus to respond to people in crisis, children especially. Yeah, you brought up two wonderful points. I mean, 
all of it was wonderful what you said. I mean, we're always having this carceral, punitive response that always seems to be first. And with these children, we're presuming them to be guilty until they're proven innocent. And we saw that happen with Tamar Rice and Trayvon Martin. Um, so yes, I hope that bill is successful. Um, there's one more, there's one more thing I would add to that. Sure. Um, which is that, you know, the children's defense fund really looks at young people from birth all the way through their mid twenties. We are very focused on a group of kids we describe as emerging adults Mm. and 18 to 25 year olds, as many people will just intuitively know, um, are not necessarily ready to live entirely independently. That's not the culture that we live in. Most young people, when they reach their late teen years and early adulthood, um, are really just beginning to make their way in the world. They need support with education, with employment. Many still live at home or with the financial support of family. And the other part of our agenda when it comes to raising the age is expanding the protections that we have used for adolescents and children upward into that age group. Meaning we have a bill right now that is expanding the protections of a a law called the youthful offender status law that would prevent kids who are prosecuted in the adult court, which in New York can happen as young as 13, um, prevent kids in these ages, up to 25, from leaving court with a permanent criminal conviction and reducing, or in many cases, making completely unnecessary incarceration. This is very important for a couple of reasons. One is because we don't want kids aging out of this um, early uh, adulthood period into life with a criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. It derails opportunities for education. It makes you, in many cases, unemployable. It can uh, operate as a huge barrier to housing, um, in public housing or in private housing. And in many cases, it can also make you deportable. Mm. Um, if you are undocumented or even if you have a green card. So we, we look at these um, opportunities to work at both ends of the system, the very youngest, moving them out altogether, and then expanding these protections of adolescence upward into the mid-20s in order to really address the enormous racial inequity that is happening in our criminal justice system and also to try and advance economic justice. In order for us to recover from COVID, from the pandemic, from the economic depression that our communities are living through now, we need these young people to be able to participate in all parts of our communities and economies. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to give judges these tools um, that can help kids emerge from a prosecution without this lifelong burden of a criminal conviction. So there are these really these two prongs of youth justice that we're focusing on in New York um, as a as a next step that moves beyond the reforms from 2017. Well, that's excellent. Um, love to hear that. And speaking of COVID, um, COVID, this COVID year disrupted our health system, our economy, and most definitely our children's lives. Uh, The Biden-Harris administration passed a $1.9 trillion relief bill earlier this month that included an increased tax, uh, child tax credit. 
Can you tell me what the benefits of the child tax credit are to families and what are the potential downsides? Uh, There was rumored to be cuts to other safety nets. Um, I'll let you expand upon that. So one way that we think about children and families is through this lens of something called targeted universalism, which is that we really need to set universal universal benchmarks for child poverty, for uh, child health care, and for all the issues that we work on. In order to arrive at those benchmarks, um, which are intended for all children, we need to think about the communities of children that don't have a pathway to those benchmarks because they are either burdened with uh, the legacy of racism and economic dispossession in our communities or based on immigration status. And we need to develop tactics and strategies that move every group of kids towards that goal. And I think what you see with the tax credit um, is a one-year expansion of an existing tax credit in our federal law that expands the credit from $2,000 per child to $3,600 for kids under six and for $3,000 for kids six to 17. And this expansion also makes families with the lowest incomes and families with no income at all eligible for the full value of this tax credit. So it's an enormous um, contributor to uh, opportunities to really raise the floor on child poverty. Arguably, it could reduce child poverty for Black children by 52% nationally in in, in a single year, Mm -hmm. and for Latinx children by 45%, by Indigenous children, 61%. Um, And this is an enormous opportunity to put cash back in the hands of family that at this point have survived uh, a year that really finds no parallel um, in our lifetimes. I think, you know, when you ask about some of the downsides here, I think, you know, there are a couple. One is implementation is very hard, Um, you know, to maximize the participation in this tax credit families are going to have to file tax returns. Um, And for many, that's going to require support and outreach at a state and local level to make sure that families can actually get this benefit. The other thing is that it's a one-time deal. Um, And we really need to see sustained investment in strategies to address child poverty. And so child poverty is a long-term issue. We are supportive of a movement to make this type of credit at this level permanent. Mm. And that is going to require some financial investments um, from our federal government long term. I think that the good news is that we will see, I think, relatively rapidly how many children and families uh, get this benefit and the impacts on their lives. And we'll be able to convert that into a strong argument to make this permanent. But as you know, um, a lot of children are left out. And so in addition to making this permanent, we need to make sure it really covers all children who are living in poverty in the United States. Who is being, which children specifically are being left out right now? So, you know, right now, children who are immigrant children who don't have social security numbers, they are not eligible to get this tax credit. In New York, That is 72,000 children. 
So we are talking about a lot of kids that are left out and arguably are among the most marginalized and the most resource deprived, the most living in poverty. And so in New York, we have been pushing for a bill that would address this, um, would expand the state's empire tax child, uh, state child tax credit to include these 72,000 children um, and to try and fill in the gaps behind the federal government, knowing that this group has been left out. And that's going to be essential, I think, uh, for states across the country to consider, especially places like New York, where we have a lot of children that don't fit into the federal rubric. But it's also going to force the federal government um, and our allies in Washington, including our national office, to really look for ways to expand the federal benefit to make sure that more children can get it. It's good for everyone is the bottom line, when children um, do not live in poverty. Children are much more likely to succeed at school, much more likely to be able to contribute to their communities. And so it is very, very short-sighted for us to leave out um, thousands and thousands of children, whether it's in New York or any other place. I agree. Absolutely. Um, the relief bill also states it provides $39 billion to child care providers, indicating some of which must be used to help families struggling to pay the cost. Can you translate what that means and who exactly is benefiting from that relief? So those funds, um, which are frankly long overdue and much needed, I mean, we were in a child care crisis in this country well before COVID, mm -hmm. and this is only amplified and magnified that. Um, the, the value of this is really going to two places, one to uh, daycare and child care providers that are intended to have these resources to sort of stabilize some of the uncertainty um, that they've experienced this year. Children have not been able to come regularly. Many places have had to close or to reduce the number of children that they've had. And they've really struggled to stay open, to be able to compensate um, the people who take care of our children, and also to be able to address the evolving regulations at a state and local level to create environments that are safe for children. So that's one stream. The other stream is really intended to support uh, families themselves through vouchers and other programs that are intended to put resources in the hands of, of families, working families who need that childcare. The problem is that this has always been a very fragmented and bureaucratic system. And, uh, you know, there are certain income thresholds to be eligible. There are challenges getting the vouchers. For example, in New York City, you might have to interact with three different agencies in order to get a voucher to be used mm -hmm. with a provider to get your child um, into a daycare. There may be long waits at any individual daycare provider in your neighborhood. There may be very long waits just getting a response from one of these agencies because many have had to shutter their doors because of COVID and don't have walk-in hours or have fewer staff or are moving these types of requests online or over telephone that just contribute to this backlog of requests and an un unmet need. And so while the funding is there, there are enormous challenges in operationalizing it, getting it mm -hmm. into the hands of our community providers that are working so hard to take care of our children and into the hands of working families who really need a more turnkey way of accessing those services and 
financial supports in order for it to really work in their day-to-day lives. So, you know, there is a movement in New York to really expand through our state systems more people to have access to these subsidies, to uh, to limit the types of co-pays that parents would have to pay, to, to compensate providers more, to give more than what is typically available, which is a minimum wage, and to also create more flexibility so that providers who are facing absences, children who don't regularly come or come on off days based on parents' work schedules or other children going to hybrid school um, will be able to have a more consistent source of income and uh, financial reliability to keep their staff. And, you know, these are the types of things that when we have a crisis like COVID reveals all these cracks in the system Mm -hmm. that deepen and broaden and more children and families fall through and, and more stories are revealed And so it's a moment where we need to really do a much deeper dive into how we we connect these systems in ways that are much more family friendly. I agree completely. Um, I want to just talk a moment about this 15 percent increase that uh, food stamp or STAP recipients will see that that only really continues through September when it expires. Um, Families who have children remote school learning could be eligible to receive pandemic EBT benefits through the summer, but only if their state opts to continue it. Uh, While this seems to be kind of an adequate temporary fix, what is the current state of funding for free meals at schools across the country? Is more investments needed? And what policies would you like to see implemented to make sure food insecurity is properly addressed for children in the U.S.? Well, if you think the child care system is broken, feeding children uh, in in our society is just as broken, if not more. Um, It is... It is shocking. Um, you know, we do, we have seen expansions um, for the pandemic EBT card. You know, that is really about giving a little bit more money to families to be able to spend on, on largely on food. Um, we have seen thousands of children disconnected from their source of food, both breakfast, lunch, after school, snacks, by being disconnected from schools. And you're absolutely right that we have a real patchwork across the country when we talk about delivering school-based meals. And the result is that school-based meal programs are really operated much like a business. Um, The system is that uh, community-based providers, schools, and other organizations that are serving children have to do an enormous amount of work to document need and then to often pay up front for that food and then seek reimbursement later from the federal government. And that sets up a number of problems which are very predictable. One is children's lives change all the time. And that unpredictability and the onset of crisis is something that we have seen throughout this last year. And the result is children may move in and out of very tight uh, eligibility requirements, but the bottom line is that they're hungry. And if schools don't have the flexibility to just feed every child in their school, then they are in a terrible position of having to uh, judge who is eligible, who is worthy of being fed at school today. And the result is that we have uh, schools where children and families are shamed 
for uh, needing nutrition and food in schools. We have schools that have very different systems of figuring out who is eligible. We have schools that are routinely under uh, compensated because they're really just paying for everyone and hoping that they will be able to document the need and be reimbursed later. And all of this really results in too few kids getting regular meals, both during the school year and during the summer. And so when you ask about the policy solutions here, I think they're obvious. We need a universal food program for Mm -hmm. every child in every school that will meet their needs for breakfast, lunch, after school, and dinner if necessary, that won't be need-based, that doesn't require us to uh, shame families or to create food debt. This happens in some places where parents are billed for uh, the cost of food in schools. We need to look at food as a fundamental foundation of our education system. If we can't do that first, we can't do anything that follows from that with our children. And so we really, you know, we endorse a universal uh, child nutrition program, a summer meals program, a program that shifts away from sort of needs-based testing, shifts away from these administrative burdens on schools and community-based organizations that are really just trying to feed our children, and um, that really destigmatize the fact that our children should and can be eating regularly in schools every day, that that's the right thing mm-hmm. for us to be doing together as a community, and that sharing food is an essential part of building community in schools, as well as meeting the basic nutritional needs that ki- that kids have to have met before they start learning. I would love to see a universal uh, food program at the federal level. I think that would cure so many ills. I I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, I want to talk about the UBI for a moment, which is the universal basic income, which became kind of a hot topic last year. And this was something that mayoral candidate Andrew Yang had popularized during his presidential campaign. But multiple economists have said the numbers just don't bear out. Uh, One stating making cash payments is is no solution to ending poverty and inequality. Is there a place for cash payments to alleviate poverty and inequality, uh, or are we better served with policies like baby bonds that Senator Booker had suggested? We need to be thinking about a multi-pronged approach uh, to addressing poverty and looking at some of these strategies around universal basic income, guaranteed income, child allowances, baby bonds. Um, Starting with baby bonds, I mean, that is a model that has a great deal of uh, evidence to to show that it could really help us make up some of the black and white wealth gap in the United States. You know, we operate in a society today that is the result of generations of systemic racism operationalized through state and federal policy. There's a reason we have arrived at a place that the average white family is 10 times wealthier than the average black family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in order to undo and address some of that, we need strategies that are federal, that are um, intended to, uh, to compensate um, for some of that disparity. Baby bonds are one piece of that in the sense that they set aside money through federally managed accounts set up at birth 
and endowed by the federal government that will grow over time so that when a child reaches adulthood, they can access these funds for education, to purchase a home, to start a business. It's deeply connected to these ideas of emerging adulthood that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. People at 18 don't magically become uh, self-sufficient, independent, and frankly, the social and behavioral science that we understand now is that their brain is still developing through mm -hmm. age 25. So we need to be able to give black families, poor families, some of that cushion that white families are much more likely to have to pay for that first car loan, to pay for college education, or to be able to assist with the debt afterwards. The problem with baby bonds is that there's nothing before 18. And that's mm -hmm. why we really need to be thinking about things like making the child tax credit permanent, but also thinking about universal basic income strategies. I mean, some of the research that was coming out of Stockton, California, shows that you know, when you give people money, they make the right decisions for themselves. Mm. Uh, they make decisions that are unburdened from these restrictions around using money for only food or only uh, cold food and not hot food <laughs> or only right. food at, at school um, and making decisions that are more appropriate for their whole family, thinking about investing uh, in employment or training opportunities, thinking about where using money to pay for a car loan might open up opportunities for everybody in the family, might change the way that they live and where they can live. It, that, that actually thinking about the autonomy and self-direction of families, their ability to control their own outcomes, if only they had the resources that were available to their white peers it, it is, it's very powerful. And I think, you know, we are seeing some examples of this in, in California. There's a model for a universal basic income for uh, people aging out of foster care, people mm. in that very vulnerable period um, between 21 and 25. And so we are really looking at this, um, at models across the country and trying to learn from them about ways that we can really, uh, separate the support that families need from the surveillance and restrictions that come from the way that most of our existing programs operate. And I really feel like, you know, this path forward, thinking about how all these pieces go together, it's not either or, it's an and. So maybe the UBI could be approached in the targeted universalism frame then, so that it's more targeted because something like, obviously someone like Elon Musk would need to have the be participant in the universal basic income. Um, some of the proposals, I believe that Yang was saying that it would just be universal like a social security type. Uh, and that's when it wasn't financially working out. But maybe if it was more targeted, you're saying that it could possibly be something we should be keeping on the table? We have to use a targeted universalism frame. I mean, okay, we, we, that we have to be thinking about any strategy as uh, addressing the, the barriers and burdens that keep some kids from hitting that uh, target of living a life of prosperity and without poverty. And so, yes, I think that, you know, strategies that really think about how these types of programs can serve those kids and communities is the right way to go. 
Okay, excellent. Um, so a family will, on average, spend $1,000 on diapers a year. Um, a person with a menstrual cycle will spend over $6,000 in their lifetime on menstruation products. Right now, Wick and Snap do not allow parents to purchase those benefits, saying that it's not essential, but also that it would take money away from their program to add another benefit. Um, but could we have a separate federal assistance program for diapers, tampons, pads, and toilet papers? Well, I mean, even the question is uh, a very revealing one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you live in poverty in the United States, your life is dictated by the restrictions of uh, which programs you're eligible for and how you can spend that money. Mm -hmm. And um, if anything, I think the first point of reflection is why would we possibly be operating in this way? Um, how does this serve us? And, you know, is this a perfect example of why you really need to be thinking about cash assistance for families so that they can make these choices based on what works for them, um, whether it's UBI or child tax credits or other things. So I wish we weren't in a landscape where we had to legislate every part of someone's needs into a different bucket of funding. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's not the right way for us to solve these problems. You know, I will say that there is, um, you know, a, there is federal legislation um, that has been um, around, which is called the Diaper Need Act, that would establish a, a sort of grant program, a demonstration project in communities in order to have federal assistance for these types of, um, really for diapers and for related um, materials that you need when you have a kid, like wipes and, you know, bottles and other things. Um, but I think increasing WIC or SNAP by 15% isn't going to offset the cost of diapers. And in the reality, you know, diaper banks, as they operate across the country, are privately funded, not-for-profit organizations um, that really fill this gap. And I think that, you know, whether, you know, you can use a little bit of your TANF money or a little bit of your, you know, whether it's coming from different sources, the reality is that we're not thinking holistically about right. families and their needs and the developmental needs of their families as they change. Right. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm ready to say that we need to, to, uh, to have a, federal, a piece of federal legislation to solve this. I think what we need is much more flexibility and thoughtfulness about the holistic needs of families so that they aren't caught in this situation um, of being able to use funds in such limited ways. I agree. Um, so right now in New York City, an average of 8% of children are pushed out of school. In my neighborhood, uh, the rate is between 10 and almost 13%. Um, right now, the Children's Defense Fund has two programs, Solution Not Suspension and Dignity in Schools. Can you tell us a little bit about those programs and what are some of the factors that are failing children in schools and what can we do better to address that through policy? So children in New York State and in New York City um, are much more likely to be pushed out of school, meaning suspended or permanently expelled or sent to a, another type of school so they can't attend their local school if they are Black, if they are Latinx, if they have a learning disability, if they um, are an English language learner. 
So what does that tell us about what is really operating behind this school pushout? What we know is operating is, you know, all of the school, all of the schools in New York City have police at the front door. Every single New York City DOE school has a school safety agent who's an NYPD employee sitting at the front door. Um, we have in New York City 5,500 school police, but we have 2,800 guidance counselors. So we look at these data and we can come to some conclusions about what's happening here. We are policing our children in the spaces that they spend most of their waking lives. Uh, we are setting them up without the supports that they need, but they're much more likely if they are in crisis or have age appropriate conflict with another child or with a staff member or with a teacher for that to be responded to by a police officer and not by a counselor or a social worker. And so we have very predictable results in that situation, which is that we see kids uh, escalating into either uh, school-based discipline that happens inside the school, pushing kids out of school, or in some cases, arrests that take kids into the juvenile and to the adult system. So what we need um, is really a, a rethinking about what happens in school. One that thinks about school climate holistically, thinks about the needs of children and the people in the building, what makes them feel safe, and how we address conflict, um, which is predictable, normative, age-appropriate, and happens in every school, and I think all of us have experienced or witnessed if we've gone to school. Um, and that really requires a focus on restorative justice, mm -hmm. the practice of um, accountability in the context of working to make something whole, to resolve a conflict, confront the problem, get to the roots of the problem, find out what needs are not being met and connecting young people with services and support so those needs are met, not a purely punitive system. And so with all of that in mind, we do work on two campaigns. These are coalitions in collaboration with young people, students, service providers, lawyers, other policy folks. Um, to try and change these policies at a, at a city and state level. The Dignity in Schools campaign has been a very powerful group at the city level, focusing on a successful campaign to change the disciplinary code in New York City, um, to make it far less punitive and to require restorative justice throughout the city. And the next phase of that campaign at the city level is to really move away from school-based policing, removing the uh, NYPD school safety agents from schools and investing in making sure that every child who goes to school uh, is going to a school with a social worker or a counselor and enough social workers and counselors that they can know the children in the school, they can know what the problems are, and they can be active participants in a collaborative, restorative justice program. And so there, our agenda is really about city priorities in the budget and in the operations of the Department of Education and NYPD. At the state level, we're working on uh, a coalition called Solutions Not Suspensions. Mm -hmm. That is a bill that would uh, make some big changes statewide. It would end suspensions for mm -hmm. kindergartner through third graders. Um, it would 
require the use of restorative justice and other alternative discipline instead of punishments that are exclusionary and that push kids out of classrooms and out of schools. It would limit the amount of time that a child could be sent out of school for any infraction to 20 days to try and address the fact that, you know, at some point, separation from the community is no longer uh, an appropriate response for a behavior and just becomes a mechanism for limiting that child's educational progress and making it harder and harder and harder for them to come back. Um, and this bill would also prohibit suspensions for minor infractions like tardiness or dress code violations or, you know, very discretionary things like insubordination. And these are the types of uh, infractions that are very often used against Black and Latinx students. The more discretion you see in the way an infraction is, is designed or, or, or not really defined, more likely you're going to see it used against kids whose needs are just not being met and, and who are targeted for, for punitive discipline. So that bill is something we've been working on for several years. That would make an enormous change in the landscape of school discipline across the state. I agree. I agree. Those, and those are wonderful solutions, too. Um, there are thousands of children in foster care in New York State. Uh, um, there are some children that are emancipated and waiting for adoptive families, and there are some with the goal of adoption, but many more will age out of the system. Can you tell me currently what is working with our foster care system in New York and what is not? and what policies you'd like to see implemented at the state and federal level? Well, New York uh, has done an enormous amount of work to reduce the number of children in foster care. So while there are 15,000 children right now in the state's foster care system, this is down from 37,000 in 2002. And uh, the, 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 the enormous change that we've made in terms of reducing the number of children that we've separated from their families has been based on investments in preventive services, services that are intended to support families in crisis, to stabilize uh, and to address conflict and to address other reasons that a child might be removed without having them be removed. And that has been um, a huge success, really, over the last 20 years in New York. The, the reality, however, is that 30% of children in foster care today in New York are 14 or older. And this is a group of kids that we worry a lot about because they're much more likely to age out, to leave the system without uh, being sort of legally returned to their family and having what we call permanency in the child welfare system. And those children have some of the worst outcomes longer term, much more likely to live in poverty, much more likely to be homeless, much more likely to end up in the juvenile and adult criminal justice system. And so these are kids that we are very worried about. And across the system, we still have enormous racial disparities that frankly parallel the criminal justice system. You know, Black and Latinx youth 
represent about 75% of all the kids in foster care. So we know that uh, we still have enormous failures operating in our system. Too many children removed, too many children remaining in care for too long, and too many Black and Latinx children really being the target of investigations and removals. So I think when we think about how we address some of these things, we need to look throughout the continuum. And uh, some things that we've advocated for that have recently been adopted by the state, and we'll see how they play out. One is a kinship firewall, which is a requirement that uh, when child welfare agencies are thinking about removing a child from her family, they work very diligently, repeatedly to make sure that child goes to another extended family member, an aunt, a grandmother, an Mm -hmm. uncle, a cousin. Why is that important? That is important because the trauma of removal is profound. Mm -hmm. And uh, that trauma can be lessened by going to stay with other family. Similarly, children can really maintain ties with their family of origin Mm -hmm. if they're staying in their family network and they're Mm -hmm. staying connected. So that's an essential piece. The other is um, we are, the state has adopted a what we call a blind removal process, which is trying to take some of the racial disparities and um, uh, sort of institutional racism that's inside the child welfare system and screen it out. Um, By making the decisions to remove a child from the family, um, go through certain bureaucratic processes that remove information about race and would hopefully make those decisions more equitable, less likely to remove a child from a Black and Latinx family when the facts are the same mm-hmm. across race and ethnicity. It's been shown to be successful in certain parts of the state, and that is going statewide. The state has also begun to invest in family enrichment centers, uh, which are community-based services that are intended for families, regardless of whether they have touched the child welfare system. There have been changes in um, the investment in non-investigatory responses to child uh, abuse and neglect. So finding pathways to keep parents out of a system that frankly can burden them by being by being put on a register uh, if they are found um, to have committed abuse and neglect, they can keep them from working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are seeing a number of policies that are beginning to roll out after advocacy for many years that can operate sort of before kids in contact with the system, during. Um, and and really hopefully after in terms of keeping kids connected with family. There's also a project called Fair Futures in New York City, which is about pairing teenagers from their kind of early adolescence through their young adulthood with an educational coach, somebody dedicated to their success um, and completion of school. So there are lots of interventions that are happening here. Mm. At the federal level, we have seen a shift Um, with something called the Family First Act, which is going to change the way that feds give money to states to really create more incentives for children to be served without being removed from their family, more preventive Mm -hmm. services, family stabilization supports, and um, huge divestment from congregate care, meaning Mm -hmm. settings where children are institutionalized. We are just about to implement that law in New York State, and so the jury is out um, Mm -hmm. as to whether or not we will see reductions, further reductions in foster care and further reductions in congregate care. For us, um, 
as we look ahead at the Children's Defense Fund, we are thinking about how we continue to protect these preventive services for families that keep uh, children home. Uh, those services were sort of on the chopping block with the state budget this year, and we had to do a lot of work to try and restore those cuts. The budget is not done at the time that we're speaking today, so mm-hmm. very hopeful that the money will be returned, especially in a year like this where so many children have gone into poverty, where thousands of children have lost parents to COVID. Yeah. It is a time when it's really shocking to think about cutting the, the safety net out of the child welfare system. We are also thinking about problem solving in the child welfare system. So we're also advocating for a government office called an ombudsman that would be mm-hmm. able to help solve problems between biological parents, foster parents, local um, child welfare agencies, and to try and um, prevent people having to go to court or the disruption of um, foster care placements or or conflict happening around children by having a streamlined way for families and for foster families to be able to resolve questions about how to work with their children. We also support uh, more money for kinship placements. One reason we've been able um, to reduce our reliance on Uh, foster care and congregate care in New York is because we've been able to do more to support families to take care of their children, um, extended family. And so we need to do that. And then, you know, the last piece that we're focusing on right now is getting the very youngest children out of congregate care. Congregate Mm -hmm. care is, is, um, is not a place really for any child who doesn't Mm -hmm. have a therapeutic need. Mm -hmm. Um, It tends to lead to uh, children aging out of foster care without family, right? Living in institutions kind of tease you up to live in more institutions, whether it's a homeless shelter or or a jail or a prison. And so we are right now advocating for strategies that would really limit the way that children could be placed in congregate care if they're under the age of 13, restrict the types of placements they could go to and provide more funding, like actual monthly payments to families in order to keep them with family, um, because we know congregate care is so destructive. So there are a number of things we're looking at. I mentioned the universal basic income issue mm-hmm. for children aging out of foster care in California. It's something mm-hmm. I'm very interested in, in learning more about, and I feel like could be something that we could develop here in New York as well. But the key takeaway is that the child welfare system really starts with preserving families, supporting families in community, and um, making sure they have the resources to thrive, as well as thinking about how we intervene once children are removed, and hopefully getting them home or on a pathway to success as young adults. Those are great, um, all great solutions. And I'd just like to say I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Marion Wright Edelman for a moment, uh, the founder and president Emirata now. She's Emirata, basically retired, but she's still there. Um, without mentioning her contribution to the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971. And so I wanted to kind of end with this question. Um, this child, this Comprehensive Child Development Act passed with a bipartisan majority through both houses, landed on Nixon's desk, and uh, he vetoed it at the last minute when Pat Buchanan kind of stated that the bill would implement a communal, or really communist, but he said communal, approach to child rearing. And he was trying to tie it to fears of that time of communism. Uh, He also said it would have a family weakening implications. 
Um, so between the economic crash of 2007 and this devastating COVID year, it's clear that we need a bold, comprehensive piece of policy like the Child Development Act of 71 just to kind of help families get to a better place of economic security. Is it time for universal child care or is there a better approach to helping families and children in this day and age? I think that uh, you know universal child care, expanding the the flexibility and reducing the administrative burden and connecting more children and families with the supports they need with regard to child care is essential. Um, I think what we have learned over this year, in terms of how our federal response matches with the needs of communities is that uh, generally we need more funds and more flexibility across the board. And so opportunities like the child tax credit that should be made permanent, um, opportunities to make more flexible things like the child welfare funds that are coming from the federal level to preserve and support families and communities. We need to be thinking across these uh, pieces of federal legislation that are much bigger and operating in a bigger way than they were in 1971, frankly, right? We have a much bigger apparatus for addressing child and family poverty and risk. And so we need to be looking at all of these different programs and thinking holistically about how we open them up. One example, you know, in foster care is young people in the transition age years of adolescence, you know, 18 to 21, who were who were having to be forced out of foster care during the pandemic really built a movement last year saying, you know what, you cannot just kick us out in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a moratorium on aging out of foster care. We need to be able to stay in. We need to have flexible funding. We need you to be able to um, help us pay for cell phones and computers and to stay out of homeless shelters and pay our rent and give us flexible funding to remain in school, even when our schools are turning hybrid or being shut down. And the result was they won. They won an enormous victory in uh, in changes to the law that, yes, are temporary until the end of September, but that opened up all of these funding streams to be much more flexible and responsive to their needs. That needs to happen across the board. And I think that's what COVID is teaching us as we look at all of these policies, is we need to open them up investigate them, find out the pieces that aren't working, and get out of this crisis mindset that we only turn the dial up on these resources when we see you know, people literally uh, entering poverty at rates that we haven't seen before mm-hmm. to like, how do we actually take some of these ideas, make them permanent, and engage in a more consistent across-the-board policy approach that puts more flexibility and more funds, including cash assistance and direct cash payments, into the hands of families with children, regardless of their immigration status, um, with a special focus on those that are currently living in poverty and Black and Latinx communities. So, I, you know, I think I stand on the shoulders of Mrs. Edelman as really a whole generation or multiple generations of advocates do at CDF and elsewhere um, with that broad vision for uh, the commitment to children. She often would say, you know, budgets are moral documents. Mm-hmm. These pieces of legislation are moral documents. They tell us what we need to know about how we care for children and families. And so it's imperative that we take the lessons of this COVID period and move forward with a much bigger agenda. 
Well, Julia Davis, you have a brilliant and beautiful mind, and I wish that every single representative in the United States had as much knowledge and compassion as you do on these issues, uh, because then we wouldn't have a crisis. Uh, (laughs) Families wouldn't be in crisis. So I just appreciate you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to share all this extraordinary knowledge. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, this knowledge that I share with you is not just my own. It uh, it really needs to be said that this knowledge comes from so many people who've experienced, uh, with lived experience, the, the challenges that these policies are intended to address. This knowledge comes from my colleagues in New York and in Washington um, who do this work every day. And it really, it, it takes all of us committed to listening and learning from each other and raising up uh, these stories and raising up the solutions that come from communities in order for us to make these changes. So thank you for creating this space, um, holding this space for this conversation, both historical and contemporary. It's important for us to know where we've been and think about where we're going next. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obscene. There will be new episodes coming up this April and May. Thanks for joining me. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.